You're listening to Build, Launch, Scale. The podcast for people focused on using technology to bring products to life. Each week, we'll dive into a specific topic within product management and hear from some of the best product people around. The goal? To help you find some inspiration, learn a few new tricks, and ultimately, build, launch, and scale better products. Build, Launch, Scale is a production of Product Collective, a community for product people and the organizers of Industry the Product Conference, where product people from all over the world gather every fall. For Product Collective, I'm Mike Belsito, and this is Build, Launch, Scale. Ever since co-founding Product Collective, I've had the chance to meet and spend time with so many amazing product people. Whether it was Ken Norton of GV or Mina Radhikrishnan, who used to own product at Uber, it's actually one of the most fun parts of my job. As a product person myself, I get to learn firsthand by some of the best in the business. But there are some product people who I've always wanted to meet and connect with and learn firsthand from, but simply just haven't had the chance yet. Jason Fried of Basecamp is one of them. If you're a product person, chances are Jason needs no introduction. He's the founder and CEO of Basecamp, is a prolific writer through his blog and books that he's written, such as Rework, and something I personally have a soft spot for. He's a Midwest guy. Yet, I've never had the chance to connect or meet Jason in person and spend time learning from him. But that's all soon about to change. What started out as a World Series bet I challenged him to on Twitter, a bet I actually lost, well, it turned into Jason agreeing to make the trip to Cleveland in September for Industry 2017, the product conference that we organize here at Product Collective. And I can't wait for everybody to learn from Jason as we interview him live on stage about his work with Basecamp, his thoughts on managing product, and business in general. But before Industry, I actually had the chance to spend some time with him over the phone for a little preview session. With somebody like Jason, I actually had no idea how to prepare. So I enlisted the help of the Product Collective community and asked them what they wanted to learn from Jason. The result? One of my favorite episodes of Build, Launch, Scale yet, as Jason opens up about, well, a lot. In fact, where Jason and I started is pretty fitting, as in the last episode of Build, Launch, Scale, we talked about product roadmaps. The thing is, Jason doesn't believe in product roadmaps. Jason actually thinks that roadmaps can hurt you. I think roadmaps are terrible ideas. I think long-term planning is a terrible idea when it comes to product development. I think people hurt themselves all the time by trying to get too far ahead of themselves, making plans way, way, way out. And then, you know, things change. Things change along the way. I mean, you, everything gets pretty fuzzy after a few weeks, really. And so, you know, you start, like, well, this year we're going to do these nine things, and you get to close to the end of the year, and you've only done four of them, and then you start rushing, or five of them, or you have different ideas, and you're like, well, we can't because we put all this work into this plan, and I just feel like it puts blinders on and there's no good reason for it. Why not reevaluate where you are every six weeks? That's what we do. So we do a batch of work that takes about six weeks and there's a different, few different kinds of projects in those six weeks. There's some big projects, a couple, which we call big batch projects, which take the full six weeks, and then small batch projects, which take anywhere from a day to a couple weeks each. And we'll usually do one or two big batch per six weeks and maybe three or four or five small batch. And then when that's over, we take a week or two off not off of work, but off of planned work. And we look around and we think about what we want to work on next. So like, how is that ever worse than planning ahead of time? Like, What's worse with planning ahead of time is that you don't look around, you don't change your mind, you, you aren't objective as you go. Instead, you try and decide where you're going to go every day 
over the next year or whatever. And it just doesn't make any sense to me. Why not just kind of evaluate as you go? If, if it ends up being the same, great. But chances are it's going to end up being better if you evaluate as you go because you'll have more information as you go. You may have different priorities as you go. You may discover new things as you go. I've always believed in making decisions when you have the best information. And the best information is right now in the moment. It's not thinking about what we're going to need in eight months. It's thinking about what we need over the next few weeks. And then once those few weeks are over, you can move on to, to make that decision again and go through that process again. So I found that to be a lot healthier. And every, everything we've ever promised long-term, we've regretted. Like, oh, yeah, we'll do that by the end of the year. Yeah, we'll promise our customers we'll do that by the end of the year. And it's really easy to say that. There's no cost to saying yes later. The only cost you have to saying yes is if you actually have to do it now. And then you, you take that cost seriously and you consider it and you think about it. But to say, yeah, later, it doesn't cost anything except for the fact that you've made an obligation or a promise to somebody else. Now you have to deliver it, even if it's not the right thing to do later, but you've already made it. And so you end up regretting it. And I just, so I'm just not a fan of that at all. And by the way, I see a lot of companies focusing way too much on this. And I think they're making a big mistake. I think they'd be much better off if they just thought about the next few weeks worth of work. And then when that's over, they think about the next few weeks worth of work. And then by the way, that doesn't mean you can't have big ideas or anything like that. People say, well, how do you, how do you get something really big done? Well, you do it in small chunks and you keep evaluating as you go. So make sure that that big idea is still good. Cause just cause it's big doesn't mean it's right or good. It can be a terrible idea and it can cost you months and months and months and a lot of morale when you just, keep plugging along and prodding along because you promised yourself you would do something big. Just fine. You can still do something big, but chunk it into smaller bits that are digestible and easy to do. Figure out how you can launch things along the way and sort of course correct as you go. That's our, that's our take on it at least. And I have to admit what Jason just said flew in the face of everything that I've learned. I was just getting used to the idea that Andrea Sayas of Prodpad brought up about not assigning dates to roadmaps, but no roadmap at all. I mean, don't customers demand a roadmap that shows your product vision? No, they don't. They do not demand to know where you're headed. You think they need to know where you're headed. And they might ask you where you're headed, but that's not a demand. But it's just funny. I hear that I've heard this throughout my whole career, which is clients and customers need to know. They want to know. They must know. And if, if someone's telling you like, well, this customer won't give us money unless we lay out the next 24 months so they know where we're going, they're probably going to be a shitty customer. Because if you have to keep them abreast of the next two years worth of where you're going just to keep them as a customer, you don't really want them as a customer. You want people who trust the work that you're doing, who enjoy the product that you have today, not the thing that you might have down the road. You want customers who like what you have now, not what you might have later. Because in their minds, your promises are not going to be the same as the promises that, you're, is in, that are in your mind. There's an illusion. What happens is, is the further out you go and the more abstract things get, there's an illusion of agreement where they think they know what they're getting. You think you know what they're delivering. But by the time it's done, it's not exactly what any side, either side wanted. And now there's a disconnect. And they said, well, you promised this. And you said, well, you promised that idea, but that's not how we were planning on doing it. And then you just get into this really nasty situation that you could have avoided in the first place. So the whole no roadmap thing, that might be a radical idea. But in so many ways, it does solve a lot of problems that product people often run into listing something on a roadmap that somebody else on the team ends up telling a customer about, and then the customer asks about when you're going to release that new feature or product, but they're only asking about it because somebody told them about it in the first place. So you might remember Jason said before, Basecamp goes through six-week cycles, and the horizon for them after that batch of work, it's six weeks. That's it. 
but Basecamp's been around for a while. I asked Jason to dig in a little bit about their six-week process. Was it always this way, or did they arrive at this based on some trial and error? Yeah, this has been like 12 years, 13 years of, of, of honing in on it. We used to not have deadlines at all. We just, however long it takes to get it done until we're comfortable with it, right? Like that's sort of the idealized version that everyone starts with. It doesn't ship until it's perfect or it doesn't ship until it's done or whatever. And after a while, you realize that that's actually a pretty bad strategy because things take longer than they need to. You end up obsessing over details that don't matter. And there's no sense of when this is going to end. And that's a terrible thing for morale. People do not like to work on never-ending projects. They want to know that what they're working on is going to see the light of day. And when you have no deadline at the end, there is no light of day. There's just like a bunch of maybes. So we started that way, though. And what we found was that there's this great, I think it's called Parkinson's Law, which is like work expands to fill the time available. If you give something forever, it'll take forever. And so then we started giving things three months. We had these like three-month windows. And we found that, guess what? Everything took magically about three months. You give it three months, it takes about three months. And, and then one of our designers, I think he suggested, he's like, why don't we try six weeks instead? We're like, all right, let's try that. And guess what? Everything took about six weeks. And it was about 95% as good as a three-month project. And that's perfect. That's exactly where we want to be. Because then we can do a couple things in, th- in three months versus one thing that's maybe a tiny, tiny, tiny bit better. And perhaps in many ways, it's over-engineered if it takes longer. So I like the exercise of cutting things down to their smallest elemental bits, figuring out what really matters, and sort of putting the pressure on us to make decisions and calls along the way versus hemming and hawing and letting things take longer than they should. Um, And then getting a chance to do it all over again. Because if we make a big mistake, like we build something and it sucks or whatever, or we build something that people don't use, like we've only really wasted, if you want to even call it waste, six weeks versus like spending four or five months on something nobody uses, or something we don't like or something we have to throw out. That's really demoralizing. So the six-week process, it wasn't always the way at Basecamp, and it can be hard to change processes. But think about it. We're all product people. Our jobs are to iterate products all of the time. It sounds like Jason and his team are always iterating not just the products that they build, but the way that they build them. I asked Jason if this was a coincidence. We think of our company as a product, not just our product as a product, but our company as a product. So we're always trying to iterate on the company as well. Like we all know how to build software. We all know that software gets better as you iterate on it. But a lot of companies are very stagnant in their process and how they work. We try to iterate on our process and our company just like we iterate on our product. So this idea of like no deadlines, three months, six weeks, we've been just constantly trying different things in the six week cycle with about one to two week gap in between the next cycle seems like it's it's the right fit for us, the right cadence, the right rhythm. It gives us enough time. It also forces us to make tough decisions, which we think is the right thing to get used to doing. A company as a product. I love it. But who's at the helm when it comes to product at Basecamp? I was going to ask Jason about the product management structure and the team of product managers that work at Basecamp, but then I seem to recall that Basecamp, in their way of doing things a little bit differently than anyone else, they actually don't have any product managers. So if you don't have any product managers, who's ultimately responsible for product at Basecamp? Technically, I lead the product on the desktop and website. And I guess technically on on the mobile side, although none of that is really like true in a day-to-day. And I don't want to be the one making calls and I'm rarely making calls. On any particular project that we're working on, the teams are three or fewer people. So they make their calls, three people, It's a really easy number to manage. You don't need someone to manage a team of three. A team can manage itself. 
the designer typically leads the projects, but everyone has an equal say in things, except if something, a call has to be made, the designer will make the call because they're, they're building something that's closer to the customer. They're thinking about it in different terms than, than someone perhaps who's, who's building the back end of it. That's not to say that programmers don't have a lot of say here. They have a tremendous amount of say. But when the call has to be made, we typically go towards the person who's closest to the customer experience. And as far as product vision, there's generally three of us, myself, David, and Ryan, who decide every six weeks roughly what projects we're going to work on over the next six weeks. But input comes from all over the place. So we have a tradition here where people pitch ideas all the time. Uh, there's a base camp set up for it where people post messages. They write up really detailed pitches with sketches and, and long form thinking, really well put together ideas. And those are published whenever people have an idea and they publish them. And then every six weeks we go through those, consider those pitches, consider things we're thinking about. And then we put together the next batch of work, which then teams self-organize around. The product team, they decide how to break up the team into smaller groups of three max to do all the work that needs to get done. And that's it. Like management typically comes in when you have big teams or big long-term projects where someone really has to hold the whole thing in their head and there's a lot to hold and it lasts a long time. But since we only do things that take six weeks or less, and since our teams are three people or, le- or fewer, there's not a lot of management required. Sometimes there's some course correction along the way. I'll look at stuff and have some suggestions or whatever. People ask for my advice or David's advice or Ryan's advice or whatever. But fundamentally, the teams make their own calls along the way, and the products are small enough that we don't need a lot of overhead to to get them all done. So some of you might be listening and saying, yeah, but that's Basecamp. We're different. We're an enterprise company. We have so many more employees, so we can't work like that. Or however your company is, you're different than Basecamp, right? Well, sure, your organization may need to run a little bit different. But at the end of the day, imagine forming three-person teams. Even if you have a lot of employees, imagine many of those three-person teams. Imagine empowering those teams to allow them to create the product that needs to be created. It's not impossible. Maybe you'll actually have product managers to help those teams, but regardless, while one size doesn't necessarily fit all, the way that Jason runs Basecamp, it might be more applicable to your organization than you'd think. But can those three-person teams actually get real substantial work done? We're big on independence versus dependence. I see a lot of companies that are far too dependent. This group can't move without this other thing being done. And before that thing can be done, this thing can be done. And they just tangle themselves up and make things hard on themselves. And it's primarily due to these dependencies. When there's bottlenecks, when you have to wait for people to do something, when the teams are large, it it just slows everything down. It doesn't make things faster. The more people you have does not make things faster. More things do not get done with more people necessarily. Certainly, in parallel, you might be able to do more things. But individual projects do not get done faster necessarily with, with more people unless they're extremely specialized projects where you need extremely specialized skills. But most companies do not have those kind of requirements, ours included. And three people, which is basically, by the way, I should say a three-person team is typically made of two programmers and one designer. Sometimes it's just one programmer and one designer. Those teams can do an awful lot of great work if they're focused on the work itself. If they're not uh, mired in meetings all day and being disrupted by a million other things, we don't sit in chat rooms all day. I think that's a terrible way to work. I think it's a really toxic way to work. It's incredibly distracting. We use chat when we need to in Basecamp for making some quick calls or some ephemeral social stuff, but we write things up and we ask people to consider them fully and get get back to each other when they have time, not when uh, immediacy calls. That's kind of a very different way of working. It's a calmer, more measured way of working. It's not urgent. It's not rushed. It's not ASAP. 
It's not, I expect immediate answers. The, what we expect are thoughtful responses, not immediate answers. Okay, something that Jason said stood out to me. He said, yes, it is possible for small three-person teams to produce great work in a six-week period if they're not mired down in meetings or drowning in chat all day. Now, I've worked at companies when my schedule was dominated by meetings, and at Product Collective, we live by Slack. But Jason made it sound like Slack and other types of chat services, that's a bad thing. I asked him to go deeper on this and whether these things, even those that make us feel like we're being more productive, does he believe they're actually getting in the way of real work? You basically have to be militant about distractions and interruptions. I believe that it's my job to protect and preserve my employees' time and attention. That is the most important, precious resource we have. And everyone at Basecamp deserves a full eight hours to themselves every day. So we, the company does not take people's time away from them with scheduled meetings or anything that the company needs from people. Everyone at Basecamp has eight hours to themselves every day. Now, some people have responsibility to others, so their schedules are a little bit more fragmented, let's say. But the people who are actually doing the work, programmers, designers, writers, doing the actual work, they have a full eight hours to themselves. They're not expected to follow along with anything else. They are supposed to be focused on their work, and so they have plenty of time to do it. So the answer is not more hours. The answer is cut out the distractions. It's not about, well, well, I need 50 hours this week. No, you need 40 hours this week. Let's cut out 10 hours of distraction versus adding 10 more hours of work. You've got to look at it that way because that pays dividends forever. You know, you cut these distractions out, you, 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 you work in a way that's not real time. Real time is just a, ter- it's a terrible way for groups to work. It's popular right now, but it's terrible. And people are starting to realize how terrible it is. There's a lot of people who are like, what the hell have I gotten my company into? Everyone is in chat rooms all day, chatting all day. You're being pulled in a million different directions. People are trying to follow 12 real time conversations at a time. They feel like if they can't get their word in before the conversation scrolls away, they'll never have a chance to speak up. Therefore, everyone's paying attention. It's like, it's terrible. It's a terrible, toxic environment. And that's why people are working longer and longer hours. You've got to look at that. Not that you need more time to get it done, but you need to cut the distractions out. So we're very militant about it. It includes not having meetings, it includes no expectations of immediate response, it includes not making decisions or debating things in real time, rather write things up, post them to Basecamp on a message thread or in comment threads on things and write them up thoroughly, not one line at a time, but write complete thoughts down and allow people to take the time to consider them and get back to you. It might be, it might be in five minutes, but also could be in three hours or tomorrow morning. Like what's the rush? If you need something immediately, fine, but that shouldn't be something you need all the time. The expectation of immediate should be incredibly rare. So it's just a different mindset. And people can continue to struggle, but they don't have to if, if they look at it from a different perspective. And I think that's kind of what I'm trying to explain to people is that there is a different way to work out there. And you should be thinking about how you're working. You shouldn't just be taking the tools that are popular and doing this and doing like, what are you doing to yourself and to your team? This is important. Think about this and look at where you're wasting time. Look at the behavior that's causing the problems, why people feel like they don't have any time to get work done anymore. And eliminate that behavior or replace it with something else that's more considerate and more thoughtful and more respectful of people's time and attention. Okay, did you catch the number of hours that Jason Freed expects his employees to work? It wasn't grueling 12, 14-hour days. It wasn't even 10. It's eight. Eight hours in a day. That's 40 hours in a week. Ask yourself, when's the last time that you've truly worked a 40-hour work week? 
If it's been a while, maybe you're doing it wrong. As Jason insisted, the answer isn't necessarily piling more work hours into the week. The answer is eliminating the distractions that prevent you from getting the work that needs to get done, done. If your company execs are the ones that need to hear this, maybe you can forward them this podcast episode or at least recommend Jason's classic best-selling book, Rework. He talks a lot about his workplace philosophies in that book, and it's a great read. Or you may want to attend some of the sessions that Basecamp actually puts on themselves throughout the year on the way that Basecamp works. We do these workshops every six to eight weeks called the, the Basecamp Way to Work workshops. People flying from all over the world. We spend about six hours with them in our office and we show them exactly how we work. And people leave these sessions with a different perspective on work. It's always fun to sort of flip people's perspectives and, and show them a different way of, of doing this. So if you can tell from throughout this episode, Jason is a pretty opinionated person. He has strong beliefs. But one of the members of Product Collective actually wondered whether Jason's strong beliefs ever get challenged. And if they do, how does Jason react? Does he ever change his mind about things? I'm wrong a bunch. I am not religious about my point of view. I, like, I have a point of view, and I believe everyone should, and you go into it with it, with conviction. But if, you, if someone shows you a better way or a different way, like this happens all the time um, in design decisions, very specific design decisions where I think something should be designed one way. We build it, we look at it and we go, uh, you know what? In theory, that worked, but in practice, it doesn't. And someone goes, what about this? And, and, and I go, yeah, that's actually a much better, much better point of view. And in fact, I know you pitched that earlier and I, and I said we should go in this direction. And you were right. And like that happens all the time. I, I don't that doesn't bother me at all. Like I am. I think the moment you get too hung up on your own ideas, you're, you're screwed. I mean, you should have them and they should be strongly held. You should be able to release a strong idea if, if another one comes along. And the thing is, is, if you're too hung up on your ego or being right or in getting credit or whatever, it doesn't help anybody, including yourself. Like it hurts you and it's gonna hurt everybody else. So there's really no good reason to do that. Sometimes you fight for something because you believe it's right, even in the face of initially people not believing it. And you know, some stuff you really hold strongly and you really fight for it and you and you you try and, and get people to, to give it a shot and chance. But even when you do that and it's wrong, it's just it's wrong. It's no big deal. So it happens, it happens frequently, small things, big things, but we don't keep score on who who has the right most decisions. It's, none of those things matter. Having this conversation with Jason really got my mind going. I learned a ton, and I hope you did too. And let's face it, Jason's been around the block as both a product person and an entrepreneur. To wrap our conversation up, I asked Jason to think back to when he hadn't yet been around the block. Knowing what he knows now, what advice would he give to his younger, less experienced self? Most of the stuff you worry about doesn't matter anyway. There'll be things that you worry about along the way in your career that just don't matter. And, and you'll really stress out over them and you'll really think you need to do this versus that. And like, and it, it just probably doesn't matter. Like there's many different solutions and ways to do things and whatever. And I probably was hard on myself in ways that I didn't need to be. And I think that's common for people who are new at something. They, they have this feeling like they need to prove something and they need to be right. And they need to show that they deserve the stage that they're on or whatever it is. And so you kind of worry about all this stuff and it turns out a lot of it just doesn't matter anyway. So I would just say like, whenever you find yourself worrying about something, it's probably not worth the energy you're putting into it. That would sort of be my advice. And it's broad, more philosophical advice than it is like a specific thing. So that piece of parting advice from Jason Fried is where our interview ends. 
But if you want to keep learning from him, Jason frequently writes through his blog. You can certainly attend one of his workplace workshops at the Basecamp headquarters. He's on Twitter. Or, of course, you can join us in Cleveland this September at Industry as we get him to open up even more about the way he works and his take on product. And if you enjoyed this episode of Build, Launch, Scale, we'd love it if you'd share it with a fellow product person or even leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever else you get your podcasts from. I know it takes a few minutes to do that, but we so appreciate it as it really does help us a ton. And a special thanks goes out to the members of the Product Collective community who gave me some great ideas for questions run by Jason today, including Sean Leitner of the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland, Adam Jackman of Aver, Jason Pryor of Blue Sombrero, Adam Thomas of Philosophy, Megan Harris of Safe Chain Financial, and Karis Loveland of Rue La La. And if you want to be a part of the Product Collective community and stay up to date on our newsletters, webinars, even connect with others in Product Collective, even me from time to time when I need ideas on interviewing our guests for Build, Launch, Scale, you should totally join. It's free to do so. Just visit productcollective.com to learn more. For Product Collective, I'm Mike Belsito, and this is Build, Launch, Scale. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you got a lot out of today's conversation, and if you did, it would be awesome if you could head on over to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from and give it a five-star rating. That kind of thing helps us a ton. It'd also be great if you could just let your friends know about the podcast since it is relatively new. For Product Collective, I'm Mike Belsito, and this is Build, Launch, Scale.